Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The GabFest is sponsored by GoToMeeting with HD Faces. Now all you need is a webcam to turn your online meetings into group HD video conferences. Get a 30-day free trial at GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And buy Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up the packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 6th, 2014, D-Day anniversary. It's the Go Ahead, Negotiate with Terrorist edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate. Today, Bo Bergdahl, the American soldier held by the Taliban, is coming home, having been swapped for five bad guys in Guantanamo. Should the president have made this deal? Then, President Obama makes a late and feeble effort to control U.S. CO2 emissions, and just about everyone is furious about that. Is it too little, too late, or too much, too soon? And then the weird Senate race in Mississippi, which John Dickerson just observed at close hand. John Dickerson, Slate's chief political correspondent, is back from the South. He's here with me in Washington. Hello, John. Hello, David. And from New Haven is Slate senior editor Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. I like the fact, Emily, that you are doing your hair for our podcast, even though no one can see you. (laughs) It was raining here, and I walked in and turned on the video chat and looked at myself, and there were all these pieces of hair sticking up in different directions. But then I put my headphones on, and, you know, who cares? But what did you think? What did you – why did you – you just thought, like, I can't be seen by – by Dickerson and Plotz in this, in this state of disarray. I kind of forgot that I was – well, no, it was more that I was going to have to look at me than that you were going to have oh. to. I forgot no, that I wouldn't actually be able to see it. It was a dose, it was a dose of vanity. Exactly. Uh, all is vanity these days. Just a quick reminder about Slate Plus. I've told you a lot about it, but $5 a month or $50 a year gets you all sorts of goodies. This week's extra segment, if you are a Slate Plus subscriber and you're listening to the GabFest extra segments on on Slate Plus, is going to be my interview with Will Dobson about the Tiananmen Square 25th anniversary. We thought about making that a regular segment and then realized it didn't really fit in the in the show, but I interviewed Will, and we have it. It's, he is so good. He's a, studied China a lot, wrote a book about dictators and how they repress uh, popular movements, and it's uh, he has a very interesting case to make about why China is in a more precarious state than it seemed. So if you are a Slate Plus member, you get to hear that. And to become a Slate Plus member and to listen to things like plots talking to Dobson, uh, you can go to slate.com slash gabfest. Plus, or you can email me directly at david.plots at slate.com, and I will get you the best deal on Slate Plus. So please email me directly, david.plots at slate.com, to get the best Slate Plus deal. Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, held captive by the Taliban for five years, was traded this week for five high-level Taliban prisoners held at Gitmo. President Obama made the swap rapidly and without congressional notification, citing the 
risks he felt there were to Bergdahl's health. He is now facing a barrage of criticism from everyone. On the right, there's outrage that he's negotiated with the enemy, that he gave up five dangerous terrorists, they use the word terrorists, but certainly bad guys, for one American, notably one American who might well have been a deserter from the U.S. Army, and that he went around Congress's back to do it and possibly even broke the law. From the left, there is outrage about his seizure of executive authority and also frustration that he's willing to make this kind of deal but not to do more to wipe out the stain that is Gitmo. So I thought about whether we would swap John Dickerson for five reporters at the New York Times, and, and it was a hard decision, but I think we would do it. So, Emily, should they have done this deal? There seems to be anger from everyone. The, the senators on the left and right are really furious about it. The town of Haley, where, where Bergdahl is from, has canceled the welcome home celebration for him amid sort of concern that maybe he shouldn't be celebrated. Should they have made the deal? That's so hard. I mean, that's obviously the question We're here to to deal with hard questions. It's so hard to say when this man is home who'd been held, you know, for five years, surely suffered enormously from all of the psychological trauma and deprivation that involves. It's really hard for me to say, no, they should have left him where he was now that it's done. I have to say, though, I have found this to be enraging. I don't have a strong opinion about whether, you know, we should go and get people in the military who ostensibly deserted. Sounds to me like he walked off his base and put himself in a lot of danger. So I think it was incredibly dumb of the president not to, from the beginning, make it clear that this was not a returning war hero. However, what really bothers me about this is the idea that after all this time and all the dozens of Guantanamo detainees who have been cleared for transfer, the people who are the bargaining chips are some of the real bad guys. I mean, they're all mid- to high-level Taliban folks. One was accused of war crimes from the 90s. Sounds really plausible. And these are the people we're sending back to Afghanistan who will show up in a year or so just as American troops are leaving and surely cause more trouble. That is what has upset me because, for the most part, Obama has so ignored the plight of these all these other people at Guantanamo. And I think now it's going to be much harder, if not impossible, for him to release the people who are not a security right. risk. So there are about 150 prisoners left in Guantanamo. About 80 of them, right, Emily, have been cleared yeah. for transfer, which 78, means yep. the government has said these are people who we think can safely go back to an, either or their home country or no country. evidence otherwise. That would be the safer way to But put they are that. just sitting there for the most part. They're they were totally sitting there, and one of them And these is five were not among those 78, right? No, not at all. They were not cleared for transfer, decidedly not. And one of the people who has been cleared and is sitting in Guantanamo is being force-fed in a way that a judge has been just anguished over allowing because he is in the middle of a hunger strike. And he has cleared um, our former colleague Cliff Sloan, who's now the deputy envoy for the State Department dealing with this. He went to Uruguay. The Uruguayans have volunteered to take this man, Diab, as well as five other people, and yet they still sit in Guantanamo. And now I'm worried they're going to be there forever. So, John, on the, on the politics side of it, the, there does seem to be bipartisan fury at the president, but there's generally bipartisan yeah, fury about any... I mean, you you, it, you just knew it was going to come up. But do you think Emily's right that this makes any executive action on Guantanamo to kind of clean it up or get get rid of more of these prisoners much, much harder than it would be? Well, it depends. There's one set of issues should they have gone after 
this soldier, given that he may or may not have deserted. The principle of leave no one behind seems to still be intact here, although there's plenty of criticism from the president that six men died searching for Bergdahl. And, oh, do um, we know that's really true? I thought that was like another well, thing that's contested it's in all It's ambiguous. It's but, hard to, yeah. But it seems they probably were doing things they wouldn't have been doing had Bergdahl not right. been missing. And okay. I don't think you can say they directly died, but it's certainly there's some some kind of possibility of relationship. So there's that question. Then there's the question, was the price too high for those who were swapped? And then there's a question of congressional notification, which is both, why didn't you notify us in this specific case? And then the debate about whether the president thinks he ever has a, is compelled to notify Congress. Because when the original restrictions were given on releasing prisoners from Guantanamo, he basically, with a signing statement, said, I don't necessarily think this is something I'm compelled to do and or if the situation warrants, I don't have to do it. And you can, of course, as we discussed in all previous discussions of signing statements, you can always find conditions that warrant or fit the criteria that you've set for ignoring the statute, underlying statute. Now, back to the question. Well, you can say that you can ignore the statute. That doesn't mean that it is a good idea or legal to ignore the statute. And President Obama, when President Bush used to sign, do these signing statements, complained of right. it as a, an abuse, as but, he should have. I know. Sorry. No, sure. But Emily, I mean, I would say I don't – sorry to interrupt you, John. I don't applaud the president's executive power grab and his – you know, his, his basically saying this law doesn't apply. But it's very frustrating to live in a, under a government where the legislature is so irresponsible and careless and, and neglectful and puts the president in these very difficult situations. And the president kind of has a very Hobson's choice, like, do I execute American foreign policy with the speed and rapidity I know I need to do it? Or am I constrained by a Congress which is acting out of craven, populist, stupid reasons that shouldn't have ever passed the law to begin with? And it's, Well, craven, it's a, that's their... I mean, it's their job to be. I know, but they're really irresponsible. We have a really irresponsible Congress. Idea. Is the problem? Well, but the, in this and case, that's why the normal executive can get away with so much. But I think in the well, I guess a couple of things. One, in this case, the opposition to this swap, as it had been discussed in previous iterations, that Congress was notified about. Opposition was bipartisan. And, and so in this case, the opposition that the country is now expressing. And so in this case, it wasn't just like. The normal dysfunction of Congress. This was – if you have bipartisan opposition, you've got to kind of work through the system to do that. And also, you know, if this were President Bush doing this, I think you would probably have a different view about sort of Congress oh, getting in the way. Oh, no, no. And you're absolutely right. of executive power. No, you're absolutely right, John. I mean, I, I, in general, I find the usurping of executive power really troublesome. But I, I hate the way this Congress has dealt with the issue of are we at war – what can we do with Guantanamo? Like, how do we deal with the stain of our own moral war crimes? And I feel like Congress has, for basically craven reasons, has, hasn't had the courage to actually stand up and sort of say, let's torture people. And, but they've, what they've done is they've, they've created these situations where they've kind of constrained the president uselessly and, and thus helped contributed to this situation where he can't close Guantanamo. He's, he's unable to send prisoners. He's unable to try them in the United States. Right. He's unable to put them in U.S. prisons, all for basically stupid reasons, stupid, craven populist reasons. And that's what contributes to the situation. I mean, if you can't get them out of Guantanamo because of all the reasons you cite, then you have to find a kind of creative way to get them back to either their home countries or some other country. And just in terms of like creative ex executive, this may be a total disaster, but in terms of creative right. executive ways around obstacles, basically papering over your releasing of five very dangerous prisoners with a potentially 
good piece of news, which is what the White House thought it was, I guess is a creative exercise of executive power. No, it was totally stupid because now the people who might actually merit going home will not go home. Merit based on what? And didn't they merit it a long time ago and it still wasn't they happening? They did, but I meant merit in terms of how dangerous they are and whether some of them were just like picked up in all the bounty hunting that was going on after 9-11. Why? And he... Explain why this makes it harder for him to send those who are certified. Because Congress is freaking out. But Congress was freaking out beforehand. That's true. But Congress is now saying things like, well, this suggests that the president is just going to willy-nilly send all these people home. It puts a spotlight on what could have been and has been a kind of quiet transfer of people. I mean, we have we had more than 700 of these detainees at Guantanamo originally. President Bush sent hundreds of them home. Obama has sent people home. It's just that that has slowed to a trickle because these are people who are harder to repatriate, mostly because we don't want to send anyone back to Yemen. Most of these people are Yemeni and we are just too nervous about Yemen to send them back. That's the real issue here. And maybe this would have caused trouble without this transfer, but now we have this big, fat spotlight shining on the difficulty of sending Guantanamo detainees home. It is going to shut down the whole thing. It's not that if the president makes a deal to send a Guantanamo detainee to X, Y, or Z place, there may be more barking. But they can't stop him from doing that. They can stop him from trying him in the states and try and stop him from putting him in American. They're actually penal talking about trying to stop him. They're from trying. Doing they're it. talking they're about talking trying to stop him with impeachment. <laughs> I mean, they're <laughs> you know. So yes, they're talking about doing things, but they're not. Uh, well, and there's a, what is it? In seven months, they pass a defense appropriations bill, and they're they want to put right. these restrictions on it. Then what would it be? You can't send anyone to Yemen. Well, now that yes, exactly. what will be interesting. You can't about, send anyone to Yemen. That's Kelly Ayat's idea. What's interesting about that is that control of the Senate then really matters because yes, the defense appropriation bill can have all kinds of things in it, but it's got to pass a Democratic Senate. And if it's a Republican Senate, then that makes things more difficult. Can I ask one question? I've been thinking about a lot. So you know, in Israel, the whole idea of no one left behind is like huge. I mean, the prisoner status of Gilad Shalit basically paralyzed the entire country for years. Drove foreign policy was this huge obsession for the whole country. We had none of that here. I mean, I have never heard of Bo Bergdahl until last week or this week. I am. Sh- I imagine that is true for many, many Americans. Me it makes me think, what? Me too. I hadn't either. Thank you. I mean, it makes me feel like I, it's amazing to me that they did make this deal and then doubly amazing that they didn't see it as a political minefield. I mean, they clearly thought this was going to just be like a big parade and there wasn't going to be any fallout from it. And it just now that there's all this fallout, one thinks there wasn't even any political push for this. How did this happen? So they did think it was going to be a huge problem, which is why they had the ceremony at the White House. Now, they didn't think it was going to be a huge problem on the grounds that it ultimately did end up being a problem. So they thought the release of these five of the worst at Guantanamo would be the thing they'd get abused for. And so they wanted to create a patriotic tableau of the return of an American soldier at the White House. And so they definitely knew about that. What they didn't, I think, anticipate at all was the pushback on this notion that he wasn't a worthy person. Now, and then it gets muddled because it is he, is he not a worthy person to go expend effort and energy to go get? Or is he not a worthy person to expend these five dangerous people who can come and attack us again because of the recidivism rate of Guantanamo bad guys? They didn't, I think, recognize that that would blow up as much as it has. Now, what's hard for me to gauge is how much they think that really even matters, because a lot of the places the Bergdahl story is blowing up are places where 
anything blows up. I mean, it's the kind of people who are kind of against the White House anyway. So if it turns out that he's a deserter, should he be court-martialed? He has clearly suffered. He's been held by enemies for five years. He's in, looking at the video of him. He looks like he's compromised and, and looks troubled. And they were really worried that he was sick and possibly... But, so, but should well, he be The worried about him being sick thing is a little... So that was the, yeah. the pretext for doing this. They said basically the life of an American and there was an imminent chance that he was... But there seems to be some considerable debate about how actually sick he was. Now you could argue, yeah, but we didn't have perfect intelligence, so we had to move quickly. Uh, there's also Fred Kaplan's point, which is that this is a part of a longer effort to build relationships with this branch of the Taliban. And that there's a larger geopolitical benefit to having a kind of starter negotiation with this group because that is a way to potentially develop agreements and lead to a, a larger ceasefire of various conflicts in that area. All right. But you didn't answer the question. So, Emily, should he be court-martialed if, in fact, it turns out that he's a deserter? No, because being held for five years by the Taliban is enough of a punishment and he should just be able to go home. He's going to have such trouble. It's so hard to recover from experiences like this. No, you're wrong. Absolutely, he should be court-martialed. Absolutely. There is like – I have zero ambiguity about this. Now, it might be that he is – that if he's found guilty, that the punishment is suspended based on the suffering he's endured and the confinement he's already endured. But the same principle that says leave no one behind also says – you are responsible as a as a soldier for your actions and for the the safety of your unit and for unit cohesiveness and for you to not face any consequence in the military in the military culture which goes out and rescues you for you not to bear that responsibility with a court martial if circumstances warrant seems to me totally wrong that he has to be held to justice there must be an investigation and there must be a court martial if it warrants it yeah, and that's what it'll happen. I think you're right, actually. Although the suspended punishment, I'm going to stick with that now. But I, I fold on everything else. I, be, I mean, I'm sure that will be what happens. I'm sure they will do an investigation. If if they need to court-martial him, there will not be a punishment beyond what he's already endured, I would bet. It's really interesting how angry the soldiers from his unit are about him, about this whole mess. I mean, their voices, I think, have been really powerful in all of this. They have. And I started to think about... Basically, everything is now political. And the, and so the idea that leave no one behind is political, it seems regrettable. I was just listening to or reading through again the, and listening to um, Manchester's Glory in the Dream about the section when, when Truman fires MacArthur. Church. And, Three seconds to Churchill. No. Two. And, one. And, and the, par- the, the total convulsion in the country and basically calls for Truman's impeachment and the rallying behind MacArthur – it just reminded me that basically we've had highly political moments where the military, because I kind of like the military. I know this isn't true, but relative to every other institution in the world, the military is kind of not as political as everything else. And anyway, I guess my point is that there have been moments when it's been highly political, our relationship between our politicians and our members of the military. So this isn't a new thing. Now let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. Back in the days of black and white TVs and phones with wires. God, phones with wires. The only way for a business to avoid the post office was to lease a postage meter. But technology has changed dramatically since then. But those postage meters haven't. Luckily, there is a much better way to get your postage, which is stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can do so much more than a postage meter for so much less. You can get official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer with no extra hardware to buy or lease. And unlike a meter, there are no long-term commitments. You'll save up to 80% versus a meter. 
Plus, with Stamps.com, you can track packages, track spending, and more. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST, and you'll get a special offer, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. President Obama's EPA will issue regulations ordering states to cut power plant emissions about 25% in coming years. The regulations, which wouldn't really take effect for, for a number of years, would effectively require states with lots of coal power plants to find a different way to produce electricity, either by adding wind or water power, closing coal plants, cap and trade deals with other states, or some way to just get that number, that CO2 amount down. The power plant regs would cut U.S. CO2 emissions about 10% on the way to meeting a goal the U.S. agreed to at a climate conference of about 17% over the decade or so. So, Emily, the cuts are not seen as a big enough to make a real difference to climate change. We're still on a bad path. There's so many emissions coming out of the developing world that even cuts to our huge emissions don't seem to be enough to generally reduce global emissions to the level that people think we need to to control climate change. It's also, this measure is infuriating conservatives and it's infuriating coal country states. So why did the president do it? I think there are two benefits here. One is that Making it clear that the EPA has this authority dealing with the lawsuits that will come, and those lawsuits are probably going to fail because the Supreme Court has basically backed the EPA up so far in the interpretation of the Clean Air Act that allows the EPA to to regulate carbon emissions. So we'll have one more kind of, I would hope, moment of legal certainty about that, and then that would allow for more EPA regulation and greater actions, we hope, if climate change continues to loom as this huge threat. And then the second benefit, which maybe is even bigger, is hopefully this is going to push the market in the direction of alternative energy sources, of figuring out how to reduce emissions. It's going to be a wake-up call to industry that this is really happening and it is worth investing money in dealing with this problem. Can I ask a legal question before we get to some of the more of the politics of it? So the Supreme Court did say the EPA has the right to regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act. Even is required if there is a health risk. So how did that get past this Supreme Court? Because it's basically this this Supreme Court. It's a 2007 decision um, called Massachusetts versus EPA. And I believe it is Kennedy plus the liberals, although it's possible Roberts is part of that majority. I can go check in a minute. And basically, this is about executive authority and also about reading the text of the statute of the Clean Air Act. And there are these provisions. They all fall under Section 111. There's like B, D, C, depending on whether you're talking about cars or fixed sources, i.e. factories. And when Congress passed the Clean Air Act in the 70s, they said – other stuff that we haven't identified yet, but which might pose a problem that that we give the EPA and the authority to regulate that too. And so the Supreme Court has read those sentences to give this kind of power to the executive. And don't you see that as why it's being pitched as a health measure rather than anything else? Yeah, Obama announced them in a hospital, right? I mean, yes, I think that's true. I also think it's a way of making climate change feel like an immediate problem. I mean, this is such a difficult dilemma for 
any administration or politician that wants to take on climate change, when you start talking about, you know, the Arctic melting and polar bears and Greenland and 200 years from now, it can feel like, well, why is this our problem to solve? Lots of things could happen in 200 years. When you talk about kids sick right now from asthma, that is something that might resonate more. And and to the extent that people feel there's a connection between severe weather and this as well. Also, yes. you've had some of the momentum has been going in the other direction to the extent that people think that the benefit of use of natural gas, which I know also contributes, but has been at least part of the, some of the emissions reductions we've had recently that people think, oh, well, we're all just going to go switch because of fracking. We'll get to natural gas and then it will all be fine. That it's a self-solving problem as we come up uh, with new energy sources just kind of through the power of the market and don't have to do anything like this. Can I just say one other reason that just when we're thinking about why the president did this, I think there are two reasons. One is that there's not much he can do in terms of taking big swings at big problems at this stage in his presidency. And this is the last big one. But then there's also a a policy-oriented portion of this, which is if you take account for the new comment period, and then you take account for the actual states to come up with their plans to meet these targets, it's going to take a while. And it's going to slide into reality just before he leaves office. So there was a time where if he didn't do this now, it would all be left open to the possibility that it could be undone by his successor. And if that's a Republican, then... Well, it uh, could be undone, right? Even if there are these regs are in place, couldn't the next president come in and basically say, you know what? Right. Yeah. 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 Yes. But the hope back. is It'll be that, harder, that, though. But it was, the hope is to make right. it so hard and onerous that if you know you don't want to come in and undo, you want to come in and do if you're a president, and you know with a few exceptions, if it's such a mandate to undo it, it'll be pretty easy. But you just try and kind of lock it in place. Also, I think another political point, which is which will be interesting to watch, is the extent to which this becomes a conversation in the 2016 campaign because it's ripe for one now for this reason. I mean, who you elect as president may promise or whatever to undo these regulations. So it's state by state in this very similar way that Obamacare has got state by state. Why why is that, Emily? And and what do we think the implications will be for whether states can undermine it or whether it's going to, in fact, foster lots of creativity in how states deal with that? Part of it was legal. It's what the EPA thinks it has the authority to do. Um, You know, these questions about the intersection of federal and state power and what the federal government can require on its own versus what it can ask the states to help with, essentially. And hopefully it will, you know, allow for flexibility and each state can do their own thing and won't everything be lovely. The problem, of course, is that you could end up with this total patchwork in which there are all these different rules and regulations and everyone gets mad about the lack of uniformity. There is one part of this I really don't understand, which is the way they apportioned how much of an emissions cut each state has to do. So states like Virginia and Kentucky are around 20 percent, and somehow Washington state is at 84 percent. I totally do not get that. Do you guys understand that? I slightly understand it, which is that Washington state was already Already, about to take down its one, I think, coal-fired plant. So that's sort of saying, like, you are are already going to take out, you know, 60% of your emissions, your your CO2 emissions. So now what you have to do is do more on top of that. And that I think it's somehow – it's harder, you know, for Kentucky or Virginia or Indiana to do this because they have so much coal. coal. And so it's sort of saying, like, we're not going to force as much on you, but it's actually going to be even harder. Even though it's a 20% cut in Kentucky, it's a harder pull for Kentucky than a state where it's might be 30% just because it's so it's so coal dependent. Although one of the things that states are saying that have been a part of this reduction program so far or have been trying to take measures to reduce greenhouse gases on their own is that the states are saying, you know, we've 
we've sort of grabbed some of the low-hanging fruit already so that everything we have to do, even if we've already started, the more you're asking us to do is that much incrementally harder than what we've done before. That's one of the criticisms. Suck it up. Suck it up, states. (laughs) Can we talk about the politics for a second? There's been, you know, obviously there's lots of worry about coal country and particularly the Kentucky Senate election, whether this will throw it to Mitch McConnell, whether Democrats have just, you know, bailed on all these people who live in these places and rely on these jobs. And then there was a kind of pushback of, hey, well, A, the Democrats have already lost all these counties anyway. And B, actually, coal doesn't produce that many jobs anymore, that we're talking about a diminishing part of the country that maybe coal country is in its makes it sound like this huge expanse of America when we're talking about pockets of Appalachia at this point. So, John, what do you think about the politics? Do you think this will not hurt the Democrats that much? And the Republicans are kind of making hay over this old idea of America? A couple of things. So on any of these issues, we always have to think of them both as the strict policy issue itself and then the kind of values portion of it. So just like with the Affordable Care Act, the notion that the federal government would come in and tell a valued industry what to do sets off alarm bells, even if I don't have anything to do with coal. And with the Affordable Care Act, even if my health care is fine, you don't like the idea, certain voters don't like the idea that uh, the federal government will come in and threaten something you value. And those kinds of voters tend to be on the conservative side, and they tend to vote when they get angry at that value proposition, which is just the meddling of the pointy-headed professors in your daily life. Even if, again, your area doesn't have that much of a coal connection or as much of a coal connection as it once did. So as a kind of policy matter, arguing that you're not as dependent on coal as you once were isn't going to solve that political energy that's created by this issue. As to what it does for Democrats in coal country or in states that depend on coal, and that's Kentucky, West Virginia, Arkansas, Alabama, North Carolina, Louisiana. It affects them all in different ways. So, for example, in Kentucky, yes, it's important because it's a local issue, but also because Allison Lundergan Grimes, who's the secretary of state, has been trying to argue that she's her own person. And she's her first ad was about how she brought made it so that those serving overseas could vote and have their votes counted. Now, why was she running an ad about that? Well, veterans are a, are an important constituency and, always, and they're sort of wrapped up with good feeling. But also she was trying to show that she can do stuff and that she has done stuff. That when she was secretary of state, people don't really know what a secretary of state does. And so she was trying to establish her bona fides as a person who could take action. So now she's faced with this, which is not only a threat because it's a hot local issue, but the question then becomes, who's going to better stop these EPA regulations? Mitch McConnell, when he's majority leader of a Republican Senate, when there's a Republican House, or a first-term freshman senator who's run her first ad to establish herself as somebody who can do stuff because the voters don't really think she can. So it's a colossal blow for her. In other places like Louisiana, Mary Landrieu is running on the fact that she's chairman of the Energy Committee. Well, if you're chairman of the Energy Committee and you can't stop this from happening, how effective are you really going to be for Louisiana's oil and gas interests? So there are lots of different ways this bounces in these different races. Your point about values, John, is a really good one because there's so much of the GOP these days is tied up in the, these nostalgic ideas of what America was. Now, keep in mind, coal is a dangerous industry. Coal mining is one of the most dangerous and unpleasant jobs there is. But still, you know, the idea like, oh, these steady jobs, these paycheck jobs, these unionized you know, jobs that have helped people raise families in these parts of the country where they want to live are disappearing. And they're disappearing because the president is is crushing them. It just pulls at people in the way – that's very effective and in a way that, that moves them, even though the actuality of it is 
is not that important. Also, you have the manufacturing jobs related to low-cost coal energy that people tie into this. And then you get a little, you can get afraid of the Chinese when you say, hey, wait, we're doing this, but the Chinese aren't. And then you want to add on to that, this will shift jobs over to China because it will hurt American manufacturers. So it becomes a kind of chewy cluster of values-laden issues that politicians can play And there's one other point I want to make, which is that one of the problems I think that Democrats have and that the kind of climate change folks, the folks who are (laughs) understandably, rightly, correctly alarmed about our negligence over what we're doing to the climate, one problem that they have is that they're not able to articulate well the benefits of action. They're able to articulate the dangers of inaction. They can tell us, like, if we do not act, these terrible things are going to happen, that, you know, the things are going to melt, animals are going to die, droughts, fires. I think they're persuasive at the alarmist part of it, and and there's no doubt. What they haven't been able to do is do the positive part of it and say, here is the good stuff that is going to come out of us acting. Here are the innovations. Here is the prosperity. Here are the new kinds of jobs. And the president, I think, has, you know, there's a huge green jobs initiative, but basically they've never been able to do it because the benefits are harder to grab onto. They are harder to create imaginings for. It's not like sending someone to the moon. It's not like building a highway system. It's something more inchoate. And that's that continues to be a massive problem. I think it is, in fact, the fundamental problem with doing action on climate change is that you are unable to articulate the good things that are happen, going to happen. Right. It feels sometimes like all you can do is prevent disaster from ensuing or pre- prevent the gains that have been made, you know, for example, in fighting global poverty from eroding as opposed to, oh, we're going to all be breathing cleaner air and living longer lives and having healthier children because of these changes. I think also creating imaginings for jobs, given the recession the slow crawl out of the recession and the number of times different things have been promised as job creating and kind of haven't delivered makes that harder just as a general principle. And also in my conversations with voters now, it tends to have been with with conservatives who say this, but if you ask them where jobs are being made, they talk about fracking. They talk about oil exploration in the United States. So oil and gas, get it out of our own ground and that'll create all kinds of jobs. So the extent that there is the imagination being fired by the prospects of hot new jobs where you can make $60,000, $70,000 a year without a college diploma or even maybe even a high school diploma, it's all in in stuff that's not that great for the environment. That's a really that's a great point, John, about that on the jobs front, and 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 what where kind of expansionist government action tends to succeed it is in being able to conjure up some kind of fantasy, and I do think like the highway system is is one, or or the GI Bill is one, or going to the moon. The moon was really good. Don't but, forget but about they the need moon. A, they need a I mean, yeah, even though going to the moon is like <laughs> what what was that like why why did we bother with that. I don't think there has been anything comparable on climate change. And that, to me, is the – like that was the singular challenge. If you are a climate scientist, get on that. Think of something – Or a climate activist. Also, just one other final point on the polling and the politics is that a lot of times when this debate starts, people say, but there's wide public support for measures to limit greenhouse gases. And, and that's true. But just because people want something done, you then have to measure – where they place that issue on their most important to them scale. And these issues almost always show up at the very bottom. And that is because they feel really long term to people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all the things we've talked about. But just in terms, that's one of the things that gets thrown out there in this conversation a lot. The GapFest is also sponsored this week by Citrix GoToMeeting. Not all meetings can be planned in advance. Things come up. They're last-minute opportunities. They're work emergencies. They're great ideas that you have to discuss right now. 
But with people working from different offices or on the go, it can be impossible to get everyone in the same room when you need to meet. So be prepared. Use Citrix GoToMeeting, the powerfully simple way to meet and collaborate online whenever you need to, wherever you are. It's really easy. You sign up for GoToMeeting from your computer or mobile device and launch your first meeting in seconds. You can share your screen to collaborate on documents, spreadsheets, and projects in real time, making it easy for everyone to stay on the same page. You can turn on your webcam to see each other face-to-face. It's like meeting in person. GoToMeeting can save you time and money and make you more productive. Start working smarter today by signing up for your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code GABFEST. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code GABFEST. Chris McDaniel, a Tea Party conservative, forced six-term Mississippi senator Thad Cochran. Do you say Thad or Tad? I've never really Thad. understood it. Thad Cochran. Thad into a runoff this week. McDaniel is widely expected to win the runoff in a few weeks and then likely win the general election over a former Democratic House member. Likely, not certain, but likely Mississippi is a very conservative state. So, John Dickerson, you have just been down in the South. Tell us about this race and why it took on significance in a way that other Senate races really haven't. This is such a great moment. We've had a lot of conversations about the fight inside the Republican Party and how and if it's going to manifest itself in the primary fights in various key states. The big, obviously, thing hanging over all of this is that the Republicans have a chance to retake the Senate. There are anywhere from 10 to 12 seats in which they have a shot of taking back uh, the six they need for the Senate. So that's the big casino. And there have been the last two elections have been ones in which Republicans had a chance to win in states where they've bungled those chances because they picked bad candidates. So far, we've had a lot of races that have been called sort of the establishment versus the Tea Party, but they haven't really been. Either you've had sort of quote unquote establishment figures who have won by basically appealing to Tea Party voters. And while Tea Party elites may not want those candidates to win, they're perfectly acceptable to the Tea Party. And then in Nebraska, for example, you have Ben Sass who wins, who's called a Tea Party candidate, but who's perfectly acceptable to the establishment, the establishment because they want to win. So this in Mississippi was the first, I feel like, real fight of this primary season, because what you had is you had a state senator, Chris McDaniel, who's running against Thad Cochran, six-term incumbent, who is proud of and running on and has a career of bringing home appropriations to Mississippi, a state that benefits a lot from those appropriations, both specifically in the in the shipbuilding industry, for example, and also then in recovering from Hurricane Katrina. So he was once called the king of earmarks in 2010, Thad Cochran. And unlike other senators who've been picked off by the Tea Party, Richard Luger in Indiana or Bob Bennett in Utah, this is not just a question of he's been in Washington too long. This is a question of a, of a senator who really can deliver for the state. And he was going to retire. And uh, I was told that a lot of the old members of the establishment in, in Mississippi went to him and said, Dad, you can't retire because of all of the things that your seniority will bring to Mississippi. So this is a question about the growing of the size of government that has not happened in all the other primary races. And so that was what was at issue here. That's the kind of national view. And then there are all these idiosyncratic, crazy things that went on in the race, which we can talk about which were all about Mississippi, old grudges between factions of the Republican Party that have been in Mississippi for a long time, the populist versus sort of modernist forces in the South, and then the kooky last-minute late-breaking controversy over Thad Cochran's wife, Rose, who's been in a home for 14 years suffering from dementia, which we can talk about. But So it had like the national and then the local all mixed in there together. Does McDaniel represent, I mean, is he going to be, if he's elected senator, is he going to be like Ted Cruz, just a bomb thrower 
troublemaker, not interested in getting appropriations, and and or is he somebody who's you know he's elected and he'll sink happily into this job and and spend forty years in it and get. Mississippi, the appropriations it deserves. You know, there's a, there are a lot of people who say, and there's this is a debate going on right now among Republicans in Mississippi who may not be Tea Party types, but who think, well, gee, if Thad's going to lose, maybe we should put our chips behind McDaniel so that we can kind of flip him a little bit and he can bring things home to Mississippi. So that's a fascinating calculation going on right now. A lot of people are skeptical that he'll be able to keep his um, kind of purity once he gets to Washington, given how much Mississippi depends on Washington. And he has stacked all of his chips to, I think, use that metaphor yet for the 48th time today on this idea. So it's not like a tiny little thing he's mentioned off to the side. I mean, people will notice he ran on this central question. He talks about, of course, liberty, individual liberty and a constitutional government and all of that. But the real knock against Cochran, as he's delivered it, is that he is a part of this kind of accommodationist go-along Washington process. And then just to your larger question about Ted Cruz, there's Cruz who's, and then there's Mike Lee and Rand Paul and even Ron Johnson. There are a bunch of different kinds of Tea Party senators in Washington. And I think Ben Sass is likely to be more like in a Ron Johnson, Rand Paul, sort of Mike Lee, where you can, well, maybe Ron Johnson. really Ron Johnson? Is he a porn star, <laughs> that name? Uh, you know, where they're trying name. to get Don stuff Johnson. done. And, and, and Ted star. Cruz is more known for, could have been. you know, Ted Cruz is more known for obstructionism than than getting stuff done. So I think there will be different flavors of these Tea Party-backed candidates when they come to Washington. So, John, do you think the Democrats have any chance of winning the seat if McDaniel is a nominee, which he almost certainly will be. He'll win the run. Uh, I mean, I think it's a, a, a big long shot unless McDaniel, I mean, the problem with McDaniel is he could bungle badly, but he would have to bungle awful badly in Mississippi and also given the national picture. This seems like such a sideshow to me that it's basically just Democrats gloating that the Republicans pick someone who talks about mamacitas and does other kind of inept bungling and will try to raise money off of it nationally and then the Republicans will win the seat. But Democrats should not want a young, smart, articulate. He's smart. He's articulate. He may or may he's not be smart. He's, he's, he's a good talker. He's a good talker. Like what Smooth do senators do? They talk. Senators talk. They don't have to do anything. He's good looking. He's energetic. He's 41 years old. He's not 78 and doddering, which is what Cochran is. Cochran is is like cannot really do his job very well. He's not really with it. He doesn't – he's clear on the campaign trail. He showed himself to be not very present. Yeah. And and Democrats should not – I mean I think for the country, it's good to have 41-year-olds rather than sleepy 78-year-olds – in power, but Democrats I mean, shouldn't want this. The deal with Cochran on the stump versus his actual mental faculties and all that, it gets a little bit complicated by the fact that he hasn't had a real race since 84. And he's a kind of temperamentally not campaigning, backslapping politician in that mode. There are some who have that and they're doing it even when they're, you know, in their 90s. So I think the kind of feeling that he's barely out there campaigning is in part because of his age, but is also in part because... This is a different game than the one he came to play a long time ago, and better to not have him try to compete in it. And some candidates have chosen the other route. I mean, Lindsey Graham, Orrin Hatch, Mitch McConnell have all survived Tea Party challenges in part by kind of bending a little. And Cochran hasn't, which is both why he's in trouble, but also probably would have been a mess if he'd tried. And Emily, just to pile on to my point of a second ago, I don't think you could plausibly argue that the Republican Party is worse off in having Rand Paul... And 
Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, young, energetic, somewhat nutty guys as their public faces than they were having. I challenge you to name the senators those guys replaced. I cannot. Bunny, well, maybe, I was putting this guy more in the category of Murdoch and Aiken and Christine O'Donnell, the, the people who seem like they're really on the fringe. But maybe that's wrong. Maybe he just said a couple of dumb things and he's going to be a genius. No, I'm not sure that he's a genius. But first of all, you don't have to be a genius in the Senate. You just have to talk. What this has the slim possibility of being bouncing off of Emily's point is if Childers, if a Democrat runs against him, First of all, you got a problem, though, because you got to send resources down to Mississippi. And there are states like Colorado and New Hampshire where Democrats are having to send money where they kind of didn't think they would have to. So you become, you get into a resource problem. But if this race takes place and it's a Democrat and a Republican, you could needle McDaniel a lot and see if you could get him to do something nutty. And then Democrats could try and turn that into a national issue. It's a bit of a bank shot in a tough year. But that's one possibility. Love, this is why I like having John on the show. Like, just playing that stuff out. So, Emily, as John said earlier, the Republicans had made this mistake in the last couple of campaigns where they'd put up in states where they had winnable seats, they put up candidates who were too extreme in, the, in these kind of centrist states like in Indiana or Missouri or, or Delaware or Nevada. But it seems like they're, that in places where they're safe, it is fine for them now to run people who are quite extreme, that that's an OK yes, strategy. Yes, and then they add on to the stock of Rand Paul's and Ted Cruz's you were just celebrating. One thing that was interesting to watch in this run up to the result and we'll see how much it happens again between now and the 24th is a is a strategy that the establishment or entrenched interests or old line or whatever you want to call it uh, non tea party interests have been using and it worked a little bit in North Carolina and maybe in in Georgia where the quote unquote establishment figures won although again they were appealing to tea party voters so these these distinctions get a little the mud- distinctions yeah they, they kind of fall away but is in Mes- mississippi they were basically saying look you know sarah palin and and the tea party express and uh, rick santorum coming in for mcdaniel like these people don't give a damn about mississippi they don't care about this state and that has worked a little bit in some places it obviously didn't work here and it may not work in the end if mcdaniel wins the runoff Again, if it's not effective, it's not that interesting. But there is this sense. I mean, all the Tea Party groups are kind of all headed to Mississippi since all these Perfect races. Baggers, in, all of them. Freedom Summer. In, in, right. I mean, it's funny to think about, you know, people, people taking buses to Mississippi. 50 but, years after Freedom Summer. Right. It's Freedom Summer. Um, it's Liberty Summer. I saw, summer, you know, David. the Greyhound bus. Right. The Gre- yes. You named it, Emily. They'll do it. <laughs> the Greyhound bus station is still... Uh, there where the Freedom Riders arrived. And it's uh, it was very cool to go by there. But anyway, it's just that feeling that these races flip between being national and local and the tug of war. All Democrats are, of course, trying to turn their races into local races and not be national. But the flip and back and forth between national and local is interesting and, and can change really quickly in these races, which is fun to watch. So we're going to cocktail chatter when we're sipping a cool iced tea on a porch in Hattiesburg, spiked with some... What, what do you spike your iced tea with in Mississippi? I don't know. What would you pour bourbon. into it? I would bourbon. Put it bourbon. You, you pour <laughs> bourbon into everything. You spike your peanut butter sandwich with bourbon. I'll do, I'm going to do chatter first because John has a really good one. I just want to get mine out of the way. So oh, good. We'll then I John. can follow John. No, no you can, you can, you'll follow me and then we'll... No, you, you never want to set expectations I know, too sorry. high. Sorry. John David is all one. about that lately. So I want to quickly to ask for 
GapFest listeners help. I'm doing a project where I'm interviewing people about their jobs. I'm interviewing them about literally how they do their work. And I have a lot of interesting subjects, people I'm talking to, but I need some more. In particular, I'm looking for people who have who work in service professions or in to do form of manual or artisanal labor or just anyone who has a really interesting job that they talk well about. And if you are such a person or you know such a person, please email us at gabfestatslate.com. Recommend yourself. Recommend a, a friend because I'm, I think it's going to be a great project, but I, I would like to have more, more subjects than I have already. And my, quickly, my chatter, there was a great story in the New York Times. It's, of course, the 25th anniversary of Tiananmen Square. And there was a story in the Times. They've been doing a lot all week. But one about uh, Zhao Jinhua. I hope I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. But he was the president of the Beijing University Students Association in 1989. And he, at the very beginning of the protest, he was sort of sympathetic to the protesters. And and he was, you know, obviously this was a student movement that came out of Beijing University. uh, And he was a student leader. But he quickly kind of moved away from the protests. And the story was great. It was about sort of the road not taken. So all the people who were protest leaders ended up exiled. uh, You know, many went to prison or they had to escape China. This guy... He's a gunner. He was the eyes on the prize. He, is, he ingratiated himself with the party. He made friends with all the children of party leaders. And now he's a multi-billionaire uh, who's a secretive kleptocrat in China. And it's sort of, it was a really interesting story about how not everyone was a protester and those who didn't take the, the path ended up with their own, uh, their own opportunities. Emily Bazelon, what's your chatter? My chatter is about an interesting legal challenge to a cyberbullying law in New York. It's actually a law in Albany County, and they broadly criminalize cyberbullying. And, you know, this is the kind of law that runs right into the First Amendment, and that's why it's being challenged, because it talks about making it a crime to communicate private, et cetera, information that's intended to harass, annoy, threaten, abuse. There's this long list. And when you start using words like annoy, criminalizing annoying people, you've usually gone a step too far. Um, I don't we, would be, we would be prosecuted. I would be, I would be like serving 25 to life. <laughs> well, you know, there is a way in which our recording studio is like a jail cell, but... Um, right. But this would be an actual jail cell for David. Well, you know, so the the test case is a kid who created some horrible Facebook page called Coho's Flame Page in which he was, you know, putting up all kinds of trashy graphic photos and comments. And weirdly, the first judge who heard this case said that the law was constitutional for teenagers but not for adults. That is a distinction I have never heard of before. I was really taken aback by that. It had nothing to do with school in particular. It was just like kids have fewer free speech rights than adults. I don't think that is going to fly. But I do think we have this kind of unsolved problem, which is that if the First Amendment doesn't allow for criminalizing this kind of posting, then do we want schools to suspend and expel kids for stuff that's happening outside of school? That also raises all kinds of um, free speech and sort of authoritarian concerns. So I feel like this is a legal problem that we haven't solved, and I'm, I'm just interested in how this case turns out. Cool. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? My chatter is about um, Leonardo da Vinci's resume, or cover letter, really, that explains why he is the man for the job in a in a letter he wrote to the Duke of Milan. And the job for which he was applying... Or I want tried, to write a letter to the Duke of Milan. Yeah. Do you think there is still I think you could person? still write a letter to the Duke of Milan. It sounds like writing a letter to the Duke of Milan sounds like a, a euphemism for doing something else. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah, excuse me while I go write a letter to the Duke of Milan. Um 
Anyway, <laughs> but this would that be the Duke of Mantua? <laughs> this was, in fact, an earnest letter to the Duke of Milan. Da Vinci makes his argument um, that he has special talents and then enumerates them. Uh, he enumerates 11 of them. But it starts this way. Most illustrious lord, having now sufficiently considered the specimens of all those who proclaim themselves skilled contrivers of instruments of war, and that the invention and operation of the said instruments are nothing different from those in common use, I shall endeavor, without prejudice to anyone else, to explain myself to your excellency, showing your lordship my secret, and then offering them to you your best pleasure and approbation, to work with effect at appropriate moments on all things which, in part, shall be briefly noted below. So essentially he's saying, I've looked over everyone else, and they're basically giving you the same old goods. And then he enumerates 11 things. One of them is, I have methods for destroying every rock or other fortress, even if it were founded on a rock, etc. <laughs> Number eight, in case of need, I will make big guns, mortars, and light ordnance of fine and useful forms out of common type. I know how, when a place is besieged, to take the water out of the trenches and make endless variety of bridges and covered ways and ladders and other machines pertaining to such expeditions. Then, of course, it because life is not all about war. Number 10 is, in times of peace, I believe I can give perfect satisfaction and to the equal of any other in architecture and the composition of buildings public and private and in guiding water from one place to another. And then finally, as if it's like, oh, yeah, and I do this too, number 11. I can carry out sculpture in marble, bronze, or clay, and I can also do in painting whatever may be done as well as any other, be he who he may. Oh, so man. It's awesome to, to be full of self-confidence when you are yeah. arguably the creative, creative, greatest creative force ever. You know, but they gave the job the to a guy from Google, actually. <laughs> exactly. Did he get the job? I don't know. <laughs> can you imagine writing the letter and then not getting the job? I know. I don't. I guess. I mean, you assume he did just because uh, he's Leonardo he's da Vinci, Leonardo and da Vinci. they would be really so, sorry you know, if they hadn't hired him. Right. You would love to read the rejection letter, right? You know. I mean, you, your ability to destroy bridges uh, it was just not good enough, despite your pretty little marble statues. How about we gave you a little test on destroying bridges, and you have not quite lived up to the expectations you set in your letter. You know, I read this after having watched a recent episode of Game of Thrones, which feels sort of like you're roughly in in a similar time period. What? Well, I mean, to the extent that there aren't like mechanized, yeah, ye oldy times where there aren't like oh, electronics and and gunpowder is not really. And there were dragons. Of. Leonardo must have had a pet dragon yeah. too. So I mean, so I had in the in the background all all of this. I was imagining, you know. Numbers 13, 14, and 15, which would be the Game of Thrones version, which would be, and I have excellent methods for gouging out of the eyes and other methods of dismemberment. Those are the parts of the show I put a blanket over my head for. Yes. Coming into the final turn, California Chrome leads by a length over the show page. GabFest at Slate.com, the Twitter feed. At Slate GabFest sits on the show page's outside shoulder. Facebook.com slash GabFest drops back. Pinning our email address, GabFestSlate.com, along the rail. The iTunes store moves up on the outside. Alongside, subscribe to Slate Political GabFest and leave a comment or rating. Making a late move, producer Mike Wolo. Wolo blows by intern Max Tanny. Wolo pulls away from executive producer Andy Bowers. And down the stretch they come. California Chrome on the inside. At Slate GabFest ahead behind and Mike Wolo thundering down the outside straight. A hundred yards from the line. It's California Chrome and Wolo. California Chrome and Wolo. Wolo makes the final move. It's Mike Wolo at the wire. California Chrome second. Andy Bowers sneaks in in a photo finish for third. Mike Wolo is our Belmont Stakes champion. 
There will be no triple crown for Kentucky Derby and Preakness winner California Chrome. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll be back with you next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.